Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society virtual event as this afternoon, February 4, 2022. We're having a discussion on Judge Jeff Sutton's new book, Who Decides States as Laboratories of Constitutional Experimentation? Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, it's published by Oxford University Press, came out last year. Um, and so we're very pleased to have a great crew here to discuss the book, the ideas in it, the importance of state governments, federalism, and more. We have a great discussion planned. I'm just going to introduce our moderator really quickly, and then she'll take it from there. So we're very pleased to be joined this afternoon by Professor Jennifer Mascott. She's a professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and the co-executive director of the Gray Center for Administrative Law. I don't know if I got the title right, but you get the idea. So with that, Professor Mascott, Give the floor to you. Well, thank you, Nick. And, you know, actually, the namesake for the center is Seaboyden Gray. And so I have to say, recently, um, the center was introduced just as you introduced it. And um, Ambassador Gray pointed out it's actually the Center for the Study of the Administrative State, so as not to be concerned for necessarily with necessarily an advocacy group for the administrative state. So we study all aspects of it. How does it work? And that's one reason I'm very thrilled to be able to be here today with our two um, panelists to be able to talk about issues of progress process at the state level because process and structure is so important to liberty and to how things operate, as Judge Sutton points out in his book. So we have with us today the author of Who Decides? States as Laboratories of Constitutional Experimentation, Judge Jeff Sutton. And this builds on his um, very insightful work, um, 51 Imperfect Solutions from a couple of years ago. And to discuss it with Judge Sutton is Judge Bill Pryor. Um, and so we're going to have a back and forth discussion on several um, aspects of of the book. So essentially, um, the book, as its title suggests, discusses process within the state governments, how it differs a little bit or significantly in, in many regards from process at the federal level and what we can learn from examining uh, the state procedures to protect liberty and to restrain government and guide government. So we're going to we're going to go by, by topical areas and focus on as many as we can get through. Some of the areas that are delved into in great detail in the book include um, administrative law at the state level, um, judicial review, um, the plural executive that's in place in many states. And we may also discuss just sort of some broad themes about why process is important to uh, study and in general what we gain from looking at state governments, despite there being so many of them or their common unifying themes. So with that, Judge Sutton, I will turn to you to talk about the book, the main themes in it, what motivated you to write it, and, and the aspects of it that you consider important, any of those. Would love to hear from you. Uh, thanks, Professor Mascot, and thanks, Judge Pryor. Thanks to FedSoc for doing this. Um, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really fun to talk about the book. You know, as, as you pointed out, the book is really a sequel. Uh, so 51 Imperfect Solutions focused on individual rights, uh, obviously an emphasis on judicial review. And this is a book about structure, which um, I think as between the two, I'll bet the three of us would all agree structure is a little more important than rights. Rights aren't worth a lot without independent courts to enforce them. And who decides is so much about the process of American government. So that's the that's the big picture point. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is um, really fun about talking about states 
and state constitutions as well as federal constitutions is, you know, it's very difficult to be an originalist without paying attention to state constitutions. And the reason for that is, you know, the summer of 1787, when they're putting together the federal constitution, whether it's structure or rights in the Bill of Rights in 1791, virtually everything comes from a pre-existing state constitution. So the, truly the great era of state constitution writing is 1776, really up to 1786, before the summer of 18, 1787. And so if you care about the original meaning of separation of powers, other structural issues, you have to know what happened at the state level. So that's that's probably one of the things that really motivates me. And I think the other one, is the dialogue opportunity for the federal courts, the federal government to learn from experiences in the states. Because one thing about state constitutions is they are so easy to amend and therefore so reflective of what the American people seem to want at various times in American history. Whereas the US constitution is famously kind of frozen in the 18th century. Of course, we've had 27 amendments We've had some significant ones, take the 14th Amendment, but it's a very difficult document to amend. And that's what puts so much pressure on the U.S. Supreme Court to effectively amend it by interpretation. Whereas the state constitutions, that pressure doesn't really exist. When the people want to amend, they amend. And so it's, it really reflects what the American people seem to want. So one fun area to start with um, is administrative law, where at the federal level, we're kind of so focused on this debate, you know, should Chevron live or die? Uh, should Chevron be modified, cut back? Um, it's now famously the case that shall not be mentioned at the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, no one's willing to cite Chevron, use Chevron. Um, it, it seems like some are worried that if you pull it into a case, it'll be overruled. Others think it's not that relevant to how you decide a lot of these questions. So oddly enough, it's rarely mentioned. Um, but of course, Chevron has had a big role in American government, even if it doesn't have a big role today. Um, and then the non-delegation doctrine is the other area of federal administrative law, where we famously have these two cases in 1935, where the U.S. Supreme Court enforces a non-delegation doctrine and validates limits to federal statutes. But since, um, you know, it's been zero. And you have justices like Justice Gorsuch, who are very focused on whether it ought to be um, reinvigorated, even if modestly. And what's really fun about um, looking at state constitutions and state court decisions is this is an area where, you know, to the extent you think the non-delegation doctrine ought to be enforced a little more, to, to the extent you're skeptical of administrative deference to agencies, a la Chevron, you should be very interested in the state experiences. Very few states follow Chevron. In fact, from the studies I've looked at, it's just two that formally incorporate it in their law. There are probably a handful more that have some form of deference to agency interpretations of statutes. But the overwhelming story is state courts saying, no, we don't do it. Now, sometimes they do it on constitutional separation of powers grounds. Other times, states like Wisconsin and Arizona have written statutes that prohibit deference, which is just wild. Um, one state, Florida, I, I love this. You got to love the people of Florida. 62% of Floridians passed a constitutional amendment a few years ago saying there is no deference to administrative agency interpretations 
under the Florida Constitution. I mean, the idea that 62% of Floridians even knew about the concept of administrative deference is quite shocking to me, but you know, good for them. Um, and then on the non-delegation front, you have the famous federal story where it's basically non-enforcement of it, or you might call it the delegation doctrine. But at the state level, according to Keith Whittington and his co-author, there are 43 states out of the 50 that have enforced the non-delegation doctrine. Now, there's actually a study coming out of the Gray Center, which, you know, you got to love this, that um, you guys are now putting out studies on what state courts are doing in administrative law. Everybody's talking about state courts and state constitutions, which is terrific, and that you're expanding study of administrative law beyond federal law. Some people say that the Willington study might be a little overstated in terms of how often the state courts are vigorously enforcing their non-delegation doctrine. I think to me, the key takeaway is this is an area where the state courts are not just lockstepping, reflexively following federal doctrine. They are not afraid every now and then to say separation of powers matters. It's very um, front and center in our state constitutions. And the state courts are not going to be afraid to push back when a state legislature too casually delegates a hot potato or a vague um, policymaking law to, um, to an agency. So that to me is just really, really fun. I mean, I guess the last point I'll make before turning it over to Judge Pryor is one of the reasons at the federal level why there's been, I'll call it a little bit of hand-wringing about whether to cut back on Chevron or hand-wringing about enforcing the non-delegation document at the federal level is the concern that um, it would be very difficult to do. Um, either the administrative state would come to a halt. There's just so many statutes to implement. How could you actually do this? And how could you find a principled way to enforce the non-delegation doctrine? What's really fun about looking at the state stories is they show that should not be a worry. I mean, whatever else you're worried about, that should not be your concern because when state courts have enforced their non-delegation doctrine, it's not created huge problems for them. And states that don't have administrative deference, they haven't come to a halt. I mean, they're, they're still, they still have functioning agencies that are working in connection with the rest of the executive branch or the legislature. So, you know, this is an area where dialogue is actually quite helpful. Dialogue partly on originalist grounds because the federal constitution was modeled after these state constitutions, but also dialogue in the sense to the extent someone's worried about pragmatic concerns over whether modifying Chevron or reinvigorating non-delegation will have a lot of collateral consequences. That so far has not been the case in the, in the states and valuable set of insights. Great. Thank yeah. you so much, Judge Sutton. Judge Pryor? Yeah, so the thing that uh, fascinates me about uh, this topic is the structural differences between state and federal governments that might have led to uh, this phenomenon that, that Jeff, you know, describes in his book where states are so much less uh, deferential to two agencies, so, more, uh, so much more willing uh, to second guess and, and say that uh, some administrative decision is, is without uh, lawful authority. Um, and and there, there are at least a few um, structural differences that make me ask whether 
these explain um, this phenomenon. Uh, one is um, the, the specificity that you get, uh, the length and specificity, the de detail that you get in state constitutions and state laws. Uh, Jeff mentioned the, the state laws that specifically prohibit uh, administrative deference, but you also have in state constitutions far more detailed and robust um, uh, descriptions of the of the roles of the various branches, uh, and and you know, <laughs> Justice Scalia's uh, famous dissent and Morrison uh, uh, about uh, the independent counsel law, where he he begins by saying, you know, we don't we don't we talk about having a government of laws and not of men, but not many people know where we get that phrase. We get it from a state constitution. We get it from the from Article 30 of the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts of 1780, written by John Adams, which in very specific detail, it not only vests judicial power in the judiciary or executive power in the executive branch, legislative power in the legislative branch, but also forbids them from exercising either of the other powers, and then ends by saying to the end that it may be a government of laws and not of men. Well, a lot of states have that very provision in their state constitution. I know Alabama, uh, my state, uh, home state, has that, that same provision verbatim, but they also have more detailed provisions that, that regulate the structure of the branches. And so I wonder to what extent that explains the phenomenon. Remember, too, that you're always going to have far more detailed and longer uh, state constitutions than the federal model because uh, of the difference in the governments themselves. The federal government is one of enumerated powers. So uh, the federal uh, constitution provides these are the powers that we expect the federal government to exercise, but everything else is reserved to the states. Well, states having all those other uh, powers and having the police power, having a more general uh, power, therefore tend to have constitutions that, yes, have grants of legislative, executive and judicial authority and other kinds of authority, but also have much longer lists of you can't do this, you can't do this, you're prohibited from doing this. And, it, and it's because of the nature of those two uh, kinds of government. And so that's, that's point number one. Point number two is, I, I wonder too about how much judicial selection differences um, explain this phenomenon. Uh, and that's a, that's a topic in, um, in this book as well. A uh, separate chapter. Almost every chapter of Jeff's book could be a book. Uh, but, 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 but the um, but the judicial selection differences are are are, are start because uh, life tenure is not something you you see uh, with any frequency at all at the state level. Uh, is there? I think there may be just one state. With uh, with life tenure, is that right? Expert in con state constitutional. You know, it's 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 so funny. It's the smallest and the biggest government. Rhode Island and the and the United States have life tenure. Yeah, yeah. That's that, <laughs> and, and and so um, I knew it was one of the New England um, states had it, and no other. Uh, so a lot of these judges who are second guessing and um, and not deferring to administrative um, decisions are elected judiciaries. Um, and in some cases, you know, in partisan elections or at least nonpartisan elections, in other cases, at least 
retention elections, but they're so they're far more accountable to the people. Their jurisdictions are are, are at a small, more, more local level, and therefore judges are really known to the people uh, and, and regularly elected by them. Uh, and uh, and I think that that may explain some of the difference because federal judges, uh, the whole reason I think that deference developed in the first place as the administrative state grew was um, there was also the progressive push for expert agencies to handle complicated societal problems. But also, you know, people tend to forget how how much uh, the progressives were believers in legislative supremacy and were critics of judicial power uh, leading up to the Roosevelt era. And uh, and I think really uh, a lot of federal judicial attitudes about uh, about that, about the progressive kind of push for this is uh, explain that the reluctance of unelected life tenured federal judges um, to second guess uh, administrative agencies who end up being because of the election of the political branches really more accountable to the people, or at least that was the thinking. I think that was a lot of Justice Scalia's thinking uh, at one time. Uh, and, and so, you know, those those two phenomena, at least um, to me, ex- may, may offer a lot of the explanation of um, of these of these differences. You know, and I, I guess the, the last one is a structural difference, too. But but I, I have to defer to Jeff about he's going to be much more of an expert um, about this question is um, to what extent though, are there really independent administrative agencies at the state level? Um, This seems to me to be rooted too in the, uh, in the plural executive discussion that we might have some time to discuss. And that is that so many, so much as state administrative law, I think would really be the product of, of separately elected uh, executive officials uh, and and their decisions, or at least department heads and agencies that report directly to an elected governor uh, at the state level. And and I think you're far less likely, I may be wrong, but I think you're far less likely to see as many of the truly kind of independent uh, administrative agencies at the state level, as you do see at the um, at the federal level, but you know that would seem to me, in a way, to to make judges, state judges, perhaps more reluctant to be intruding into those decisions because uh, those agencies would be responsive to the people. But 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 maybe not. I don't I don't know what the explanation for that is. So this is really great. So between the sum total of your introductory remarks, um, we've really, I think, covered a lot of the waterfront of some of the distinctions that Judge Sutton really highlights and pulls out with, um, in the breadth of his really in-depth, rich, rich book um, along a lot of metrics, right? The changes in the judiciary structure, the differences in the executive and administrative laws we first started talking about. And I think to summarize with administrative law, I took you, Judge Sutton, to be saying key differences are that um, there are a lot more states where there 
willing to limit the um, breadth with which legislatures are willing to give discretion to administrative agencies. And then also there is some, pre- it's, a, it's a varied practice among the state courts, but there are some states that really just will not defer to administrative interpretations. Judge Pryor's explaining all the differences in structure that might lend to that, which in some ways counterintuitively to me actually hinges on this idea of state judges and how they're elected. Because at least my recollection from my law school days was that sometimes state courts and state judges being elected, it was um, it was seen as a way in which they were more potentially politically corrupt or too beholden to the interest and the great, wonderful, independent federal judiciary solves all those problems. But Judge Pryor is saying, perhaps if we see them as then closer to the accountable will of the people, there are reasons why judges then would feel better equipped or be better equipped to make decisions than at the federal level. So I guess um, and the other point, actually, Judge Sutton makes in his book, which is an interesting one, maybe we can explore um, as we shift to judicial review is Judge Sutton, you make the point that ironically, um, as there has been greater amounts of the population being able to elect its leaders, and we've had a more pure representative democracy, that the role of courts has increased. And that also seems counterintuitive because we think of courts as sort of the anti-democratic or anti-majoritarian um, branch. And so why has their role increased as the role of the electorate has increased? Um, so I'd be interested in exploring that. But also, I, th- I think um, just to ground our discussion, you know, Judge Pryor is saying, look, all these differences in structure explain why state courts might handle things like deference doctrines and delegation differently. And so I guess my question to you as the author of the book is, I mean, does that mean that we shouldn't necessarily learn from the states? I mean, is that is that an argument just that it's not going to work at the federal level? And so it's a pragmatic argument is the argument that it might be tough, but we should still adopt it. Did you write this book for us to try to learn at the federal level from all of the great practices in the states? Or was there another purpose? Well, the main the main purpose was to make sure that we think of all of American constitutional law. I mean, if I had one beef, it would be we obsess over the the single story of federal constitutions and the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's just really dangerous. You ought to look at all 51. So that's that's the main point. But I do think uh, Bill makes a, a nice point about the specificity of the state constitutions and that it's possible when we think of administrative law that maybe maybe those constitutions, the argument could be, don't have as much to teach when it comes to the federal side of things because the federal uh, separation of powers provisions don't have this belt and suspenders component. They're not quite as specific. I, I guess I would say yes and no is my answer. Um, on the side of they still have a lot to teach us, remember that Justice Scalia in his famous Morrison versus Olson dissent, which is now perceived, it was he was writing for one person, but it's now perceived as the law. Um, he relied on the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution. I mean, he, he relies on that in Morrison versus Olson. He doesn't say we don't need to worry about it. It shouldn't make a difference because it's more specific. I think, and I think this is a really fair point. I think he's saying that specificity is just reflective of separation of powers, Montesquieu views in general. And therefore it is appropriate to think of that as part of the original public meaning for the federal constitution. And so I'll just say, then I'll add one other thing, just to specify what Bill's talking about these state constitutions often impliedly separate powers by having an article one, two, and three, but then specifically will go on to say, 
The judiciary shall not exercise the legislative or executive power. The executive shall not exercise and so forth. Now, Gordon Wood says when those were put together, one idea behind them was not separation of powers, but separation of personnel so that a legislator couldn't simultaneously be a judge. But to the extent the founding generation was very nervous about one person sitting in two branches, they should be horrified by one person being all three branches, right? I mean, that's what, it, uh, in, particularly an independent agency, but that's the, the risk of agency. So in that sense, I really still feel as an original public meaning matter, the state constitutions have something to offer for the meaning of the federal constitution. And then I, you're right. There's a pragmatic point. It, it's, it's not, it's not end in, ended in terrible ways. Um, so shifting a little bit to the elections stuff that you just raised, uh, Jen and, and Bill as well. Um, this is such a puzzle. Um, so because the state constitutions are easy to amend, the American people responded to problems by f- fixing them as they saw it. So at the founding, everyone, state constitutions, federal constitution included, thought the safest place to put power was the legislature. You should remember that the early legislatures at the state level were, had elections every year. So people were like, what could go wrong, right? We can Every year we have a chance to throw them out or put someone else in. So that's where most power was. But before long, even by the end of the 18th century, early 1800s, you have all these Yazoo land scandals and other acts of out and out corruption. And before you know it, people are realizing, wait a second, we got to beef up the executive branch. We got to beef up the judicial branch as a check on the legislature. So New York and Mississippi, you got to love it. These are not exactly twin separated births. New York and Mississippi are the first two states to do elections of judges. And then it spreads like wildfire after the with Jacksonian democracy. And so basically every state after the original 13 has election of judges. And it's the early states that for the most part are stuck with um, appointment and everyone but Rhode Island and the appointment states has a, you know, an age limit, you know, age 70 or something. But here, here's the thing that's just so arresting to me. And I didn't quite realize it until I got way into the book. It's such a remarkable contrast between the way we do things in judicial review at the state level versus the federal level. The federal level, almost 250 years later, we have this phenomenon. A federal system at the U.S. Supreme Court in particular, where no country in world history has embraced judicially enforceable rights and judicial enforceable review more than the U.S. Supreme Court and the feds have. And they're doing it in a court system that is the most difficult in history to correct. There's no constitution out there, maybe Australia's, but there's no other constitutions that are as hard to amend as our federal one, three quarters of the states. And then the judges have life tenure, which has come to mean roughly 25 to 30 year um, careers. So you have the system in, in, the, in world history that has the most power in the court with the least opportunity to correct their decisions. Contrast that with the states where it's incredibly easy to correct their decisions because most state constitutions are amendable by 51%. And it's incredibly easy to correct the personnel because 90% of state court judges are elected. 
So this is just like, it's such a huge chasm in the same country. I mean, it'd be one thing if it was Austria and we're the US, we could understand the difference. This is the same country, the same American people. So the one thing, I mean, it's just an accident of history, but one thing that occurs to me about judicial review, and here's, I'll just say two main ideas. Um, everybody thinks judicial review comes from Marbury versus Madison. Well, let me just correct the record. If John Marshall had never been born, had the election of 1800 never happened, and had there never been a Marbury or a Madison, we still would have judicial review in this country because the state courts were doing it in the 1770s, 1780s, and 1790s. And all Marbury versus Madison did was take that example. In fact, Hamilton writes about it in Federal 78 because he's seen it happening in the state courts. So the state courts are the ones that innovated this. And I think the two things that I really like about the state side of the story are, and I really borrow a lot from John McGinnis in this, is if you're an originalist, you should care about how the people in the 1780s, 1770s thought of judicial review. And they did not think it was something that should lightly be done. They weren't, it wasn't deference. It wasn't fair or deference. It was just that we really have to have a conflict between a statute and the constitution before we will invalidate the statute. So they just, so McGinnis, Professor McGinnis calls it a clarity requirement. That, that doesn't seem like a bad way to think about it. But the point was you had a duty to invalidate if there was a conflict. But if there was a way, you know, to construe the statute to avoid the conflict, that was okay. And there were lots of state court decisions that did that. So the one thing from the state experiences that's kind of fun, it's historical, is we might learn a little bit about how to exercise judicial review based on the way the first state courts did it. Because that, after all, should be what the original public meaning of Article 3 was. Fast forward to the present. What do we do with this problem today of an unamendable federal constitution, federal judges that serve very long terms in a state system that's very different. That seems to me to suggest that in really difficult areas of federal con law and state con law, we ought to flip the way we do this instead of winner take all, race to Washington, get your national Supreme Court victory under say substantive due process or some new unenumerated right, let the state courts be in the vanguard. Let them be the innovators. The way we do that with state legislation, see Brandeis. And, you know, if we want to have innovative federal constitutional rights, you know, who am I to say? I'm an intermediate court judge. But it shouldn't be happening as an experiment in Washington. That is just so dangerous. It's a power grab. It's gerrymandering by another name. We should, at a minimum, be looking to the states as kind of the experimenters in chief at the vanguard in rights innovation and sometimes not being afraid to look to the state experiences about whether some federal doctrines are bankrupt. I mean, if the states are not disagreeing with what the federal courts are doing, particularly the U.S. Supreme Court, that's another data point that's relevant. Um, so you know, th those are the two things about judicial review that it seems to me helpful. Look at how they initially did it because that might be valuable to us as federal judges and how it ought to be done today if you believe in originalism. And then when we think of our modern plight and what seems to me an unsustainable course that the U.S. Supreme Court's on, um, maybe one way to do this is not put so much pressure on them to be the only rights innovator in town. I mean, let's share the work.
So well, Judge Pryor, I must have provoked you in one way or another with that. Oh, you did. <laughs> a conversation with Jeff will always provoke me. Uh, this is, our friendship began in argument. Okay. Our, our friendship <laughs> turns on provocation. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I, do, I do agree with them that the Supreme Court of the United States, we would be better served if it were not at, uh, at the vanguard of um, innovation. Uh, but but I'm, a lot of this goes back really to Jeff's first book uh, where he, he talked about the difference uh, in state courts in the development of um, individual rights versus the Supreme Court and his, I thought, marvelous um, expose of how how frequently the Supreme Court ha- has been on the wrong side of, uh, of a lot of yeah, but for we, what we think of as you know, correct understandings of individual rights. Um, but I've always been a skeptic of his idea that, that this is going to be um, solved in the way uh, that he suggests, because it seems to me the problem is that we're, we're going to have states where there are going to be more conservative um, perspectives um, about these issues. And uh, the, the, the judiciary, elected judiciary, is going to um, certainly reflect that. And there are going to be states where judiciaries are going to be more willing to be innovators in, um, in the development of, um, of individual rights and creating law in, in, in those areas. And, and those are going to be areas, too, where, for the most part, um, the, those elected judiciaries are go- going to be doing really uh, the will of the people. Now, there are, of course, some uh, famous examples where state courts uh, quickly got um, a backlash for doing exactly what um, what Jeff is describing. Um, uh, I, I, you know, the Iowa Supreme Court and its same-sex marriage decision is perhaps. Um, the most one of the most recent and famous examples where in recognizing a, a state constitutional right to same sex marriage, uh, a number of justices then uh, in the very next election when they faced the voters um, uh, and incurred the wrath of not only the voters, but uh, elected officials and other branch, you know, were taken out. Uh, and I'm not I'm not praising it or criticizing it. I'm just, that that was the phenomenon. And and uh, I think state courts and state judges um, pay attention to that. Of course, there was the famous campaign against Rose Byrd, who was a member of the California Supreme Court. Uh, and, uh, you know, in Alabama, <laughs> we've had um, the Ten Commandments judge, who I later prosecuted and removed from office, uh, but who was returned to office, uh, to, to the office of chief justice by, uh, by the voters, uh, really reflecting, uh, their, their popular will. So, you know, you have to, um, you have to keep that in mind. I think the interesting phenomenon to me, when you think of this in terms of the structural constitution is though, that the, then this is maybe why this is a topic that ought to unite people more on both sides of the political spectrum is that 
Jeff describes in this book how how frequently states are more robust in their uh, their review and and their uh, nullification of administrative decisions, uh, and that doesn't fall on as neatly on political lines as perhaps um, judicial review and the and um, in, in the individual rights realm. Uh, and, uh, and, and those same judiciaries that are close to the people because they're elected are much more willing, um, to, to second guess those administrative decisions, but it doesn't, the political fallout doesn't work quite, uh, the same way. So I, I think that is an area where, um, frankly, the federal courts could learn from the states. Um, but I'm, as much as I would like to see um, the federal judiciary be more deferential to the states and letting them sort out the issues of individual rights uh, because of these structural differences, I'm just, I guess, more pessimistic that, it, that, that it'll ever work out. So before we move on, I mean, I just want to highlight two broader points, which is one, I mean, it's, it is somewhat extraordinary, actually, that we are here in a discussion with federal judges. And for sure, one is taking the position, don't look as much to me and the power at my level, but look to the power at the state level. And so I think certainly um, there's a lot there to think about, about why, you know, Judge Sutton, you're, you're issuing that call so clearly when it's you know, perhaps even counter to interest or, you know, saying there's 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 another place to look rather than the federal level. I also want to point out and perhaps I should have done this at the beginning of the conversation with the title of your book, Who Decides? I mean, you know, this isn't just a theoretical issue that we're talking about here. It's actually, I think, on the mind of the Supreme Court justices themselves, because you talk about how serious and and tough to change um, the decisions of the Supreme Court are. And are they equipped? Do we want them to be the innovators? And just a few weeks ago, they got rushed up in an emergency posture question about big federal policy in the pandemic, um, OSHA's vaccine mandate that was going to impact lots of federal employers. And in that oral argument, the justices themselves were thinking through who decides, not as much in that case, perhaps in the federal state axis, but between Congress, the executive branch, and then what was their role um, in the judiciary. But it's clearly front and center on their minds. And as you point out, if that body of nine decides it is their role, it's very challenging to change that and to step in and do something different because it's so hard to amend the Constitution. But I think for your point to have salience with people that the answer is to turn to state judges, folks do need to be convinced that like what are the what are the strengths there when state judges are elected versus what we think of as the crown jewel of the independence of the federal judiciary. So one reason I think we've grown comfortable letting the federal judges decide things is because we see independence and tenure and apolitization as the crown jewel of what a judiciary is supposed to be. How has that gotten settled in our conscience? Do we need to go back a couple hundred years and are we missing out on the value of electing and politics in the judiciary. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, if, if you if I had to put my finger on one one single problem with federal law today or law in general, it is the who decides versus what is decided problem. We Americans, remarkably, we American lawyers, even we American judges, cannot seem to get that straight. Um, we should always be focused on whose decision it is, as opposed to, are we happy with the outcome? And 
you know, I, th- I think the problem is I'm, I'm not blaming the press. I'm not blaming the Academy, but it's just so often. Oh, I will. I'll blame both of them. <laughs> <laughs> it, is All right. so, it is just so often the case that you have this big Supreme Court argument and it gets translated to the American people as solely about, you know, if, you know, are they for vaccine mandates or against That's vaccine right. mandates? Right. Are true. they for marriage equality or against marriage equality? Mm-hmm. And as long as that's the conversation, we're never going to get out of this bind. So if I had to correct one problem, that is the problem. And good for the Supreme Court when they start having a debate with what themselves is this is this Congress's choice or the Secretary of Labor's choice? That is the real question. And that's a very fair debate. And there were legitimate sides to both on that one. And good for them. You know, the, the second thing and this, I think this is answering your question, but it's also I want to just emphasize that, I, you know, I don't want to ruin the conversation, but I think Judge Pryor and I are a little closer together than one might think on the role of states. I mean, from my perspective, originalism is the answer. Enough with substantive due process. No more unenumerated rights. None of this has been good for the country or the court or our discourse. So I just want to be clear. That is my view. Sadly, partly because of this who decides versus what is decided problem, that's just not where we are. I mean, we're, we, we live in a country, per your question, Jen, that still thinks of the U.S. Supreme Court as the supreme guardian of our rights and property. Mm-hmm. And that is a very, you're really going upstream when you try to correct that. So part of me just wants to say, okay, we got a very serious problem. Is there, are there not some interim steps? And one interim step is just to say, remind people they're not the only game in town, say that we ought to be paying attention to state courts, not necessarily deferring to them. I think that's probably not the way to think about it, but just remember that's a second option to protect liberty or property. And then the other thing about paying attention to what the state courts are doing, it's not a ratchet. Um, and this is a big problem with education about state constitutions. Uh, surprisingly, most state court judges take the view that they cannot innovate down. They're not allowed to say under the Ohio Constitution, there is no such thing as substantive due process. It, it's just remarkable to me. And I can prove the point. I mean, it's not as if Roe versus Wade is a decision state court judges are not aware of. It's been around for almost 50 years. There is not a single state Supreme Court decision where the majority says our state constitution does not recognize a right to abortion. There's one North Dakota decision where two of the five say it. There's a Michigan interim, intermediate court of appeals that says it. I want a free market. I want innovation going up or at least a market of ideas going up. And I want a market of ideas going down. State courts being willing to say, as they say with administrative law, no, we do enforce the non-delegation doctrine. No, we don't think Chevron deference makes sense. The same should be true with substantive due process and other unenumerated rights. You know, the, the point about life tenure and independence, there's just no doubt that it creates independence. So I, I'm not going to deny that. Um, the, but here's the question we're not asking ourselves. You want a court that's sufficiently independent to check other branches and checking other branches about creating balance of power. 
But is it not possible that we've entered a world where there is now an imbalance of power because of federal court independence? You can, in other words, have too much independence, i.e. from the people, and it can be unhealthy. And this is why Supreme Court confirmation hearings, the 2000 presidential election have been so much, have gotten so intense politically. It's because, in my view, there's an imbalance of power with we federal judges perhaps having more power than we should, more power than was contemplated in the 18th century, more power than any court system has had in world history, and perhaps more power than is good for us. Because at some point, American people, fools though they may be in the short term, they're not fools in the long term. If they think this is where the power is being exercised, they're going to want control over the court, which means politicizing the court, which means ultimately destroying its independence. So, you know, independence doesn't go on forever. It's like trees don't grow to the sky. Federal judicial independence does not grow to the sky. And so I think it's really tricky, but you're right. That is how Americans view it. I want them to continue to think of the federal courts. I mean, Bill and I have devoted our professional lives to this job. Um, we don't want it to end badly. We want it to end in a way where it still is a crown jewel of Ameri American government, but a sustainable crown jewel of American government. So um, some real cautionary notes there, which are great. Judge Pryor, um, things to add before we try to touch on the difference in the state executives. Yeah, only, only two things. Uh, number one, I will blame uh, the media uh, because the media reports this as the Supreme Court rules against vaccine mandates as opposed to who decides. Uh, mm -hmm. And it is reflected to, I think, uh, I'm not pointing a finger at you, Jen, um, but there, there are certainly exceptions to this, but I think a lot of the academy deserves some blame as well. All you have to do is look at the op-ed pages of all the major national newspapers and the lead up to the vaccine mandate case and then the aftermath of it and see how many notable law professors uh, framed the question in exactly the same way as the news media did. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's a double whammy of misinformation and uh, really obscuring what the real question is. Uh, so, um, now, you know, as to the phenomenon that um, Jeff mentioned, uh, though, about no state um, having uh, in the devolution sense said, well, our state constitution doesn't create any kind of uh, right to privacy, no matter what those those guys on the Supreme Court uh, say. Uh, well, there's really no incentive for that, right? I mean, this I would I would guess that the, the, the vast majority of states that have been more protective of these kinds of rights are more willing to uh, to to create or recognize them are in, in, in states where that's much more politically popular. And then in the other states where it's where the state judiciary would be unwilling to do that, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, they're still going to be bound by federal precedent that recognizes those individual rights. So there's a structural explanation for this. We, Jeff and I have talked about this before in, in conjunction with his first book uh, and in my, my review of his first book. Uh, but, but, you know, 
it is what it is. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think that the points that you both are making are really why books like Judge Shutton's here are so important, right? Because it's forcing us to take a look at really how the system works and to to come to grips with the fact that actually the difference in structure and process between states, among states, between the state and the federal level has so much influence on what's happening and what's driving the system. And often decision makers are really doing what they're doing, particularly if they're you know, sophisticated judges based on what process has been put into place by their constitutional structures. And often the constitutions, as we think of as the founding documents, are actually documents of process as opposed to imposing certain substantive values. And that gets lost in the debate. And I will say, as a member of the academy, sometimes struggle my Myself with, you know, we try to do more complex work and it gets sort of boiled down by others to sound bites. So I filed a brief in a case the court's going to be hearing in a few weeks dealing with Bivens claims and a particular judicial creation of, you know, actions against federal officers. And the brief questions whether the particular way the Supreme Court's been creating that cause of action, or at least did a few years ago, is constitutional, while at the same time noting all of the ways in which there were state law common causes of action. And my brief was explained by a reporter as um, saying there should be no accountability for federal officers, which is a point that 20 pages of the brief opposed by saying, actually, there should be. It's just maybe not done this way. And so it is really it's it, I think it's a it's a challenge because um, a lot of the communications incentives these days are to get like a soundbite or boil it down to for or against. And what we're saying here is really foundational to, to rights. And so um, I, I do want to talk about the plural executive. Um, well, Judge Shen, you, can I just can I just um, I want to respond to your Bivens thing because it's so okay. it's such okay. a great illustration of this problem. So one would have thought it, as an initial matter that if you're going to have remedies for constitutional violations, it would be a great thing for the legislature to do. Of course, Bivens is a U.S. Supreme Court case which falls under the danger of the single story. There's only one source of our rights, only one body we can trust, the U.S. Supreme Court, to create them. They imply this right of action. And if there's a key theme of both of my books, it's that often these federal uber alis approaches backfire. <laughs> Bivens hurt the people it was trying to help. If in the... Whatever, let's say it's 1971. I forget what Bivens is. Let's say it's in 1971. If in 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, we think it's a very good idea to have money damages remedies for constitutional violations, we don't have the authority to do it. Congress does. Right. Does anyone deny that in the last 50 years, there's been a Congress that would have created it? No. It would have put the spotlight on Congress. They would have created a 1983 for federal cause of action. Mm -hmm. Instead yep. of forcing the courts to go back and forth, it's so it hurts the very cause it's designed to help. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Me too. Um, and, and on that point, and I think that's actually the point of your book is you want to bring um, you want to bring a spotlight to process and the importance of process in freedom and in liberty. So I'd love to get on that theme. I mean, what because what motivated you to write the second book? Why was this important? If, if people could take get one takeaway from your second book, what are you hoping that it will add to the debate? Well, I because the states are so hyper democratic in everything they do, they elect more people. See the plural executive. They amend their constitutions much more easily and more readily. See 51% constitutional amendments. Um, they elect their judges. The 50 states are this incredible place for looking for empirical data about what 
Americans really want in America 2022. The federal constitution is not very helpful on that front because it's so hard to amend. And now I think it should be harder to amend. I'm not necessarily complaining about that. But what I am saying is we ought to be just attending a little more to the state side of things and that maybe there ought to be a little more dialogue, a little more of the U.S. Supreme Court attending to what, you know, they're not the only game in town. They should not assume. See the Reach Rucho story. 5-4, they say there's no 14th Amendment right to stop extreme partisan gerrymandering. There's no judicial standard. The state courts before and after Rucho, including in my own state, have shown the state courts have a role. State constitutions have been amended to help deal with the problem. And then state commissions and state legislation has helped. Again, it's a very hard problem to fix. But it's a great example of how I don't think there's one perfect solution to this really difficult problem. And it's really healthy to have a U.S. Supreme Court that's open-minded to saying, let's see how the states do this. I, I'm not saying they should get back into it. That's not my point. But I do think it's a good idea to not think they're the only game in town, which is, I, I'm afraid, what we Americans have imposed on them. I don't blame them. We have imposed this on them. And we need to unimpose this. Yes. Uh, Judge Pryor, what do you think are the most important points to take away from the discussion we're having? Well, I, I agree with uh, what Jeff just said. And, and you know, Jeff got a line in his book where he says that no one defends uh, partisan uh, or no one defends gerrymandering. No, extreme. It's extreme form. In its most extreme form. I'm not sure exactly what that means, because he knows um, from my having commented on an earlier draft of the book that uh, I actually think gerrymandering, it can be good. Uh, and I know there are political scientists who think it can uh, as well, because um, it it allows representatives to more easily represent their constituents if their constituencies are more homogeneous um, and uh, and they're not always being pulled in both directions by more evenly divided uh, districts. Um, so I think there are actually arguments um, for for uh, gerrymandering, but I agree with him that the takeaway from this is you know. We have a lot to learn from the states and uh, and we need to think more about allowing them um, to make the tough decisions that too often we have foisted on the federal courts. So we do have several questions in the queue. I want to get to at least one or two of them, but I do want to also note that another key distinction that Judge Sutton's book points out is in the executive branch at the state level and the idea of the plural executive. And I do think this is a really key one to unpack because so much of what drives at least our understanding of administrative law and other doctrines at the federal level stems from whether one believes in the unitary executive, the one president, commander in chief directing everybody or not. And if at the state level, often we have multiple people elected at the top, more than one that might often might belong to the same party, sometimes do not. I'd actually be curious as to uh, if Judge Sutton could tell us how frequently it's two party folks in my home state of Maryland. It's that way. Republican governor, Democrat attorney general, which leads to clear conflict in Florida, you know, Republican AG, Republican governor, um, and whether that makes a distinction. Uh, but before we do, we have a question back on kind of the judicial review and administrative law point. And the question is, if the state constitutions are much more specific, like Judge Sutton pointed out, does that mean the federal constitution would have to be amended or changed in some way for us to revisit the Chevron deference? So I think this gets to a broader question. For the federal government to learn from the states, 
does the federal government need to look different and be amended structurally because um, it's just not possible constitutionally to implement some of the innovations at the state? Yeah, I, I would say yes and no to the point. I think on administrative law, I think the separation of powers provisions in the state constitutions, I think they really are barking up the same tree, even though some of the language is distinct. By contrast, you know, the state constitutions have become so easy to amend. And the only way to fix that at the federal level is to amend the federal constitution. You know, instead of three quarters of the states, maybe two thirds, um, instead of life tenure, maybe fixed terms. So I think I think sometimes the structural differences really do require an amendment. I'm not sure on administrative law, though. I, I feel like, again, Scalia relied on the Massachusetts 1780 constitution in his Morrison versus Olson dissent. And of course, he's a thoroughgoing originalist. So I'd be inclined to trust him there. But I do, I do think the point's a good one. As the state's constitutions have evolved in other ways, the only way to use those experiences and translate them to the federal level would be to say, you know, maybe it's time to do a constitutional amendment, which shouldn't be that hard in some areas. If 45 states have the provision that suggests it would not be hard to get 45 states to support um, the amendment. Judge Pryor? Yeah, um, I, I agree with that, with both the yes or no answer. Um, I, I do think that Jeff's point about state constitutional law, particularly from the founding period, being reflective of uh, the separation of powers that is structurally um, may, maybe more implicit in the federal constitution is something that originalists should pay attention to. Uh, it, it may also be in order for us to consider whether some modest uh, constitutional amendment in this area is is important. But the thing I would also add is a point that he raised in his opening remarks, which is that there is a role for the legislative branch here too. Uh, and Congress, uh, you know, he, he, there's there's a law that 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 has or, or a bill that has been introduced that Jeff mentions in his book that that would. I forgot what the name of it was. It, 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 do you remember, Jeff? It doesn't, it doesn't have the word Chevron in it, but that yeah. is the point to get rid of Chevron. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the point of that that federal bill is is basically to end uh, Chevron deference. Now it hasn't passed, um, but Congress has a role to play here as well in ensuring uh, accountability, and and the state legislatures have done that. Uh, so there is, I think, some reason uh, to hope that that Congress might act on it uh, as well. This is an area where Congress can learn from the state legislatures. That's great. Well, thank you both of you for your time. I believe we're right at about time here. And, uh, but I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to unpack really important constitutional doctrines, talk about the federal and state level. And for those who have not yet bought it, I really do recommend taking a look at who decides um, because it's got a lot of in detailed, in-depth analysis of the state governments and an explanation about how they differ um, from state to state even and uh, case law and just methodologically and analytically, it's very rich and just a great resource for learning and I have to say, as a Scalia Law School professor, we are so grateful that Judge Shutton takes time each year to teach about state systems of government to Scalia Law students who just love the course. And so I have heard a lot of positive things about it and hear a lot of uh, kernels of wisdom that students gain from that uh, course cited to me in, in my other discussions with students. And I know Judge Pryor in his own work spends an awful lot of time with students and training up law clerks on the next generation as well. So we thank both of you for 
for your um, leadership on the federal bench, your care in the law, your willingness to talk to those of us on the outside, and your time with students and just educating folks in the system so that we can all be better lawyers and better citizens. And thanks to the Federal Society for hosting this discussion. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.